0: Still, and to baseball fans everywhere My name is Michael O'Colin, a.k.a. the Brooklyn Trolley Bro- Blogger Excuse me, do some research, find me out On behalf of my partners, whom I'll be introducing very shortly I welcome you all to what I will call our Messian Midsummer Classic Extravaganza Okay, so uh, we are thrilled to present you this evening with what we believe is an all-star lineup of Messian influencers How do you like that for using a modern word, huh? Gen X in the house. All right, before introducing tonight's roundtable par- participants, excuse me, allow me to bring you my, uh, bring all my partners in podcast crime. First, known as Mets Killing Me, and I share his pain in that, he's also known to text pictures from different ballparks around the country whenever his work forces him away from home. He's a Beatles fan extraordinaire hailing from Connecticut. Rich Spirago. Hello, my friend.
1: Good evening, Mike, and uh, thanks for hosting tonight. I'm looking forward to a um, a fun show talking about a not-so-fun topic, which is the New York Mets. <laughs> yeah, but
0: you know what? How, how, how are you enjoying the break? It's a rather lengthy one now, four days?
1: It's weird because for the last two and a half months, every night I've sat where I'm sitting right now with some game on because I do the MLB extra inning package. And for it just to end abruptly like that, it's a weird feeling after two and a half months. So, um, I'm, as much as I just said the Mets are not a good topic, I can't wait for baseball to come back tomorrow afternoon with Pirates, Cubs at Wrigley, then the Mets tomorrow night.
0: Very interesting matchup coming up. We'll talk about that in a bit. Next in, the mastermind behind this evening's event, our CEO here at the Metsium podcast, the converted Mets fan, Stan Maxwell. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you're calling in from Denver this evening, aren't you?
2: I mean, to be more uh, precise, I am calling in from, I believe when I first called, it was Arvada, but now I might be going through Westminster, but I am en route to Five Points, Denver. So, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a tight little space over here, and I'll be home in 15 minutes. It's glorious out this way.
0: Very good. Okay, let's introduce our esteemed panel and get to talking baseball. Uh, you know what? First? Let me introduce this gentleman first, because he writes it before we even think it. Catch him at sportsdaily.com or follow him on Twitter. He is Metschadamus,
3: John Coppinger.
0: Hello, sir. Uh, hello, sir,
3: and uh, hello, uh, everybody in the esteemed panel. Uh, and I appreciate you calling me an influencer, although I, I think that means I get free ice cream, and I haven't gotten free ice cream yet. So thanks,
0: <laughs> thanks for the, the way, generosity and mean... title for me. <laughs> By all means, uh, take a moment for shameless plugs. What was the last project you worked on?
3: It was actually, actually the, uh, burger ball podcast. Yes. Which, uh, we released yesterday. We had a, an hour 55 minute discussion about, uh, why the Mets front office and why the, uh, city field, uh, uh, staff hates us as Mets fans.
0: Excellent. And, uh, any other thing you'd like to uh, inform our fans of? Uh any any what
3: what any what would I like to inform the fans of? If you just have any other plugs you'd like to get out there. Oh, just uh, listen. I'm at Metstradamus on Twitter and uh, the Burger Ball Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, and I link to it plenty. And uh, of course, uh, Metstradamus on the sportsdaily.com. So uh, as I as I always like to say, come and yell at me at all three
0: places. Uh we love yelling. Next we have a gal for all seasons. She's cool, she curses. Uh she gets blocked by pro baseball players. We call her the Coop Aaron Cooper, everyone. She's a Jersey girl. Hello.
4: Well, hello everyone. Uh I'm I'm really just honored and humbled to be with such Met, mets blogging greatness over here. <laughs>
0: Now that we're all together, we are waiting on one more person. As soon as that person arrives, we'll introduce him. Uh, in the meantime, let's talk baseball. Uh, here we are in the midst of the 90th Midsummer Classic break, uh, the All-Star Game. If anyone has an, any opening observations or comments they'd like to make of the All-Star Game itself before we delve into things Metsian, uh, by all means. And, Taryn, I will start with you.
4: All right, uh, hold hold on one second. I'm kind of a hot mess right now, so you'll have to forgive me. I, I'm it's pretty much a day ending in Y. Um, so, I'm sorry. Where 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 am I right now? Um, just
0: any random thoughts about the All Star Games. Okay. I'll, I'll get you started. I'll get you started. One of my favorite all time uh, plays was, and somebody out there correct me. Uh, and, and put me on track, but it was Dave Parker's throw from right field to Gary Carter. I forgot who they threw out, but it was one of the most impressive throws I've ever seen in any baseball game. So anything like that, Darren?
4: Oh, so it's not just about this this All-Star game, because I think this was one of the most memorable ones for a Mets fan experience, um, but I do have some, and, and I, I'm i very happy that Mestradamus is, is on here because um, he will certainly appreciate the post-traumatic Mets disorder that I have with it. Uh, it was the uh, All Star game in 2006. And I I had such post traumatic meth disorder from Cabrera pulling a Roger Dorn towards the end of the game. And Carlos Beltran was on his way to be the MVP of the All Star game. And the NL was about to win. And the NL would have had, you know, home field. And it was so infuriating to see Michael Young win the MVP of that game. And the Mets had what, like six? all-stars on that team it was ridiculous it was like the Mets versus the AL and they should have won um but I do have some happier moments um in 1986 we were talking about um the Astrodome right with uh and Daryl Strawberry didn't he uh well that was the the home run derby sorry I'm, I'm talking to my uh to my research assistant here, uh, we, we we do talk a, a little bit about baseball in my household, just in case you weren't aware. And um and 1984 Candlestick Park, that was uh Doc Gooden uh, as a rookie, and that that was that was probably what made me a Mets fan. So that's all I got.
0: John All-Star talk Either this one or any other one, you know what sticks out.
3: Uh, well, I was um I I was going to mention 1984 also uh, Doc Gooden striking out three pretty good hitters uh, Lance Parrish the best catcher in baseball at the time Chet Lemon who was also on that World Champion Tigers team and Alvin Davis who was going on to be the Rookie of the Year as well I also had a fondness for for 1987 because we had the entire right side of the of the diamond locks between Gary Carter, Keith Hernandez, and Darryl Strawberry. And I think that was the year they all wore white shoes. And uh, I think Gooden pitched in that game, too. And that was, if I remember correctly, a 2 nothing American League win in 13 innings. Uh, and uh, I, I want to say Dave Winfield drove in the two runs, but don't quote me on that. Uh, and I think Winfield was the guy that got thrown out. In the 79 All-Star game as well uh, when Parker threw it to uh, Gary Carter, I believe, in Seattle. And that was also where I think Lee Mazzilli hit a home run and had a bases-loaded walk. Uh, but I got to say that this All-Star game, this All-Star week was uh, the most fun uh, that that I've experienced in a while between Guerrero and Jock Peterson and, and Pete Alonso's showing in the home run derby and his two-run single and uh, and he also made a nice play in the field to uh, to help Mac, Max Muncie out, who made a diving play. So th- th- it was it was a lot of fun these two days, and you, you can't always say that lately about All Star games, especially since the American League wins all of them. But uh, it was uh, it was a good time. It was it was a lot of fun, and t- too bad the rate, the television ratings didn't reflect it.
0: Yeah, good point, Rich. I was at the nineteen seventy six All Star game at Yankee Stadium. It's the only All Star game I ever attended. Nothing will ever beat it. What say you?
1: Well, about this one, the the good, let's start with the good. Obviously, Pete Alonso winning the home run derby uh, was a great moment. And now I need to get off my lawn moment because uh, when I think about the All-Star game, here's what I'm thinking about. Mike, when we were kids, before the, the interleague play, it was a big rivalry, right? It was an important game. I hated the American League passionately and every year I would look forward to National League kicking their ass, and National League usually did, and we would have big neighborhood parties to watch the All-Star game, and the room would be divided between National League and American League fans, and it would be a, so much fun. So think about where that's gone. We've gone from that, where these, you know, these, te- these leagues genuinely didn't like each other in the 70s and into the 80s. We've gone from that to guys playing with earpieces when they're in the batter's box having a conversation with Joe Buck. It's kind of become like a oh charity
0: softball
1: game. You know, it's kind of become a charity-, charity softball game, and I know people like it, and I was reading Twitter, and people were like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. Everybody should always play with – if a team's eliminated from postseason play, they should play with the headset on. I mean, I know some people like it. To me, it's just like, think about where it came from and how intense it was to where it is now. It just kind of – I guess it's an old man moment I have to own. You know, it just doesn't work for me anymore. Um, and then – my other all-star moment would be going to the game in 2013. You know, when, when you have kids, I was able to take my daughter to the all-star game. Even though it doesn't have the ratings it used to and it's not as intense as it used to be, it's still a very, very major sporting event, and being able to go to that live and enjoy it with, uh, you know, with my daughter was wonderful. So 2013 would be the memory I'm holding on to. Um, but I guess, yeah, I guess I had to be the naysayer. I'm sorry.
0: I'm glad you took it there. I'm in your corner. Great points, uh, Sam. What say you?
2: I mean, I just got to run with that entire earpiece that you, Freddie Freeman. I mean, you can't be as a league telling us that this one counts, that this is important, that this is going to be for home field advantage in the World Series, and then pull shit like that. Like, are you? Are you kidding me? And he, of course, he struck out, and that could have been if it really does count. And the the AL won by one run, and you got one of the best hitters in the game up. You're 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 putting him in there talking to Joe Buck. complete. they they needed to squash that immediately. Um, now that I that Rich helped me help basically lead me into that one, um, I have to say that this is the Josh peterson Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Uh, and that, that was like, why should we watch anybody else? Uh, you know, Pete Alonzo, notwithstanding, this was just like, let's just have these guys hate each other every year. Uh, that was just so, so much fun. Um, and, but and again, like, just like that time that Josh Hamilton hit all those home runs, I forget who beat him in the home run derby, but, you know, they they, they get tired at some point. They can't keep that type of pace up the entire way. And even though all of us thought that Pete's cousin was doing a terrible job of, of uh, you know, throwing fastballs his way, uh, they were able to come together and, and have the staying power. And just like we were talking about on Sunday night, Pete Alonso won the home run derby. He had a great chance to, and he did it. And he showcased himself uh, for the entire league to see and then got some hits on top of it, some important hits, uh, in that, you know, the, the, the one that counts <clears> – <throat> Uh, and then you know Jacob Degrom just doing Jacob Degrom stuff. Uh, unfortunately for Jeff McNeil, they thought Jacob Degrom was him. That didn't make any sense to me. But what are you gonna do, Cleveland, Cleveland, all around, to just briefly hate on Cleveland, which is so easy to get Uh And yeah, you know it, it was it was a hard time, and I can't remember I can't remember a home run derby other than. Uh, 2013 that I I have had this much fun uh, with, really. You know, I, I mean, Ches was great and kind of a, a weird good omen to uh, things to come that you didn't even realize as you were watching.
0: Let's uh, let's take another pass at the All Star game and talk about our All Stars in, in, in individually. Uh, Jacob Degrom he pitched the third inning, retired the side in order. He faced George Springer, Lemay from the Yankees. And Mike Trout from the Angels. He had one strikeout. Pete Alonso, as we know, went one for two with two RBIs and a stolen base. And he had that great stretch play at first base. Uh, Jeff McNeil, a yeah, rather odd night for him. Uh, you know, although the scoreboard had his name correct, they put Jacob DeGrom's face up there. Major League Baseball apologized. So I'm sure there's a little bit more you guys want to get off your chest. Sharon, excuse me for using that word, you and yourself. Everybody wants to get some more on their chest. Uh, off that chest, rather. So uh, let's expand on these three individuals, and uh, by all means, let's uh, talk about Pete Alonso's 30 home runs by the break, equaling Dave Kingman's mark of 1976, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, John, I'll start with you. Take it away, sir.
3: We are seeing a hitter, a position player, the likes I don't think we've seen before and I would put strawberry in that conversation. I would put David Wright in that conversation. you talk about the half season that Alonzo has had not only with all the home runs, but the batting average being high, his his excellent approach at the plate, which which we saw in spring training we we saw the way he was going the other way in spring training that he was letting the ball come to him. And then also his defense, which the Mets kept telling us he wasn't an adequate first baseman, uh, and then all of a sudden it looks like he's not only an, an average first baseman, but he's an average first baseman at worst. So mm-hmm. I, it's uh, you know the uh, the uh, the it it goes along to uh, to how the Mets scout their own players or how they don't scout their own players, but that's another conversation for another time. I think we're lucky, especially considering the season. The Mets are having. I I, I, th- I hope we realize how lucky we are to be watching a talent like Alonzo on the field and off the field. You know, listen, he, he really impressed me when he talked about the Wounded Warrior Project and the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, how he was going to donate uh, part of his winnings towards that. I mean, this is a guy who gets it, and he's still. So young, so uh, yeah. Thank you, Florida Gators, for making him into a uh, a good baseball player and a, a great baseball player and a great human being.
0: We're we're lucky to be witnessing this. Taryn, take this away for me because I'm trying to transcribe a number here. Sam, if you could patch in our guest like you did last time. Uh, Already patched trouble. in. Already patched in. Beautiful. Yeah, we, we got so, Without further ado i'm just I'm just going to put it this way: look, if you're going to wrangle Met 's issues and matters with our next guest, let's just say you better come prepared. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> you can read his work at Metsmoriah online and MetsMinders.net. Ladies and gentlemen, John of MetsDaddy. How are you, sir?
5: Much better than I got in. I don't know what it is. I am the only person on the planet who has trouble connecting to that number. <laughs> Just as long
0: as he got you, that's all that matters. So uh John, we've been we've been, you know, just pretty much getting warmed up at the All Star Game. Uh favorite moment doesn't have to be Mets specific. And uh we started opening up with the three Mets All Stars themselves. So if you have any observations, by all means, jump right in.
5: To me, the All Star game comes down to Jacob DeGrom. Yet again, this guy proves He's not just the best. He's the best of the best. First All-Star game, strikes out the sign on 10 pitches. Uh, This week, he needs seven pitches to get through the inning. And this go-round, he goes through George Springer. I can't remember the second batter um, that he got. And then he gets Mike Trout to pop up, which is a little bit of revenge because Mike Trout got to him last year. It's in it, What we are seeing from Jacob deGrom is almost a Hall of Fame level talent. You look at these Mets record books, it goes, DeGrom, Gooden, Fever in reverse order. For, if Jacob deGrom is able to keep this up, considering how standards are dropping for admission to the Hall of Fame for starting pitchers, five years from now, We could legitimately be having the conversation whether or not Jacob deGrom is a Hall of Famer. That's how good he's been. We may be having the same conversation, it seems, with Peter Alonzo. He's perfect. Let's be honest. Is there any other way to describe this than he's perfect? The guy comes up, he hits 30 home runs in the first half. He wins the home run derby. He donates money to charity. He comes up in a big spot in the All-Star game against Brad Hand, and he hits an RBI single. By the way, I don't know how Peter Alonso is ever welcome in the city of Cleveland again. He beats Carlos Santana in the home run derby. He makes a phenomenal stretch to get Santana out, and then he hits an RBI single off of Brad Hand. Um, I don't know how many people have had the opportunity had the opportunity to watch him at all in the minors last year. Something I keep seeing come up with Alonzo is that joke, oh, I guess he wasn't ready defensively. You know what? He was not this at the end of last year. He was not this in the Arizona Bowl. What happened was this guy, Peter Alonzo, spent this offseason getting in even better shape, working on his foot. Fir- work, working on his game. The player he is today is so far and away better than the guy he was when he walked off the field with the game-winning hit as a member, as the Mets' last game with the Las Vegas 51s. What we see with Alonzo is the same thing we're seeing with Jacob DeGrom right now. These are two players with an un Parallel drive for greatness. This is what we see out of them. It's what we see out of McNeil. We see this out of every man. If you want hope for 2020, even a scintilla for 2019, it's because of the greatness and the strive for greatness we have for players like
0: Degrom and Alonzo. And that's cool. my oh, biggest takeaway. Gotcha. Coop, I'll swing it back to you. What do you make of that Jeff McNeil scoreboard thing?
4: Uh, well, okay. I actually think um, – and, and Rich, I, I think, might remember this as well. Um, back in 2013, uh, the Spiragos and the Cooper Leros took a uh, quick road trip to Cleveland uh, to catch the Mets play at Progressive Field. And I I have the picture somewhere. Ed might still have it at the ready but they actually had every single Mets position player wrong. Um, I think it, it was something – I want to say Wheeler was the starting pitcher, and I, I really think that that was the only player they might have gotten right. But they had, like – didn't they have, like, Darno in the outfield? Yeah, it, it was like, it was ridiculous. So whoever is working the scoreboard there has no fucking clue. Like, I don't know why that person hasn't been fucking fired yet. But the the Jeff McNeil thing, like, when I saw it, I was like, are you freaking kidding me? But being that I've gone to progressive field and I saw the Mets play there, it's like the guy has no clue if it's the same person. It's just I find it very because i'm like yeah you know i was there six years ago and they screwed up every single met like they had darneau playing center field they had uh i, I don't even i don't even remember who else but it, it was it was like literally every single position player was wrong um on their schematic there so so that's kind of kind of what i think but you know to piggyback on what john just said um about jacob de and you know he's going to go down as one of the all-time great Mets. I totally agree with that. But let's talk about Jeff McNeil, who I think gets overshadowed by this monster season that Alonso is having. Oh, and Ed actually just uh, pulled it up, and yeah, it said that Lucas Duda was catching, Legarris was <laughs> playing short, Murphy was playing third, which actually wouldn't have been that bad, and uh, and Sarno was playing left field yeah it it was it was so stupid anyway okay so let me talk about Jeff McNeil for a second um and he's really getting overshadowed by the two other all-stars on the team Jeff McNeil talk about an underrated asset who just flew under the radar am I right he plays baseball this is a ball player he he hits and he feels and he does all the little things right and I think that's kind of what they need. Like this is the kind of guy that Mets fans gravitate towards. And of course, the Mets have no Jeff McNeil merchandise in any of their stores. Thank you very much. Um, but
5: that's. that's can I can I jump in, Karen, I, for one second on there? Yeah. I
4: went yeah to go, go ahead. Get
5: a, I went to go get my own jersey to be a McNeil jersey this past Sunday at City Field. They couldn't okay. do it because they ran out of ease. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Whereas <laughs> the, the Mets, Mets
3: defense Never runs out of ease <laughs> Yeah, I was when about ready, to say I think they all Rosario back I, uh, 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 I just,
2: just want to uh, just say that there's never A rock bottom For the way the Wilfons <laughs> run this place <laughs> 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 Alright,
0: time for me to regain control You animals uh, Mr., Mr. Damis, Jeff McNeil And uh, Jacob Degrom. A lot of was still topical, but after all the man is leading the national league in hitting
3: yeah it's mcneil isn't your typical 2010s ball player and i think that's why when Taryn says he's he's underrated and he's underappreciated i think that's why i think he's a throwback to a time when making contact still had some value and i i'm i'm of the belief that players like that do still have value I'm not of the belief that you have to have every single player in a lineup be the type of player that Cody Bellinger is. Now, you'd love to have eight Cody Bellingers in the lineup, but you don't need eight people that are eight players that are worried about launch angle or OPS or on-base percentage. You could sprinkle in one or two players like Jeff McNeil and and also let's give him some credit to for being a player that has been, you know, listen, he, him and Dom Smith to me have been like just just kind of jerked around if the term is right. Where, you know, Dom, Dom Smith had uh, had to deal with moving positions around and being told lose some weight. Okay, lost some weight. But, uh, you know, what's, what's his reward? They sign Adrian Gonzalez. Now he's got to play left field. Oh, great. Jeff McNeil comes in. Uh, hits 320 for a half a season and plays a very good second base. What's his reward? Oh well, his reward is uh, they get to the trade for Robinson Cano. Guess what? Learn third, learn left field, and the way and and not every player can handle that with a plum, as it were. And Jeff McNeil did, and he made the All Star team as a left fielder. So that he deserves all the credit in the world for that. And when it comes to Degrom, I, I'm not going to really add anything that you guys haven't said about the Grom and how amazing he is. But the one thing I will say is that I have an old college buddy on Facebook who still to this day and all season insists that the Grom is, is collecting his paycheck with a, with a ski mask and a gun to this day seriously and for the first month I would post something about the game recap that DeGrom wasn't so wasn't so great at and then 30 seconds later he comments oh yeah that DeGrom looks stellar and I'm like man man I if I didn't like you so much I'd kick you in the head
4: seriously
3: <laughs> I don't hear from him that often anymore since he's turned it around and uh and and made the all-star team i don't hear from but he still he, he posted something the other day where it's a here are the mets the three mets all-stars and he picture he put up a picture of a polar bear a picture of a squirrel and a picture of a guy with a with a ski mask and a gun holding a uh, a, a sack of money so it just it <laughs> kills me that there are pe- serious yes this is true and it kills me that there are people that still think this way because degrom is one of those guys that even when he doesn't have it he battles through. He'll battle through in a game when he doesn't have his best stuff, and I think that's one of the best traits a pitcher could have. He's, he's, really, he's really a joy to watch. And, yes, my friend is right when, when he says he is stellar.
4: So, Metredomus, I just wanted to uh, to point out you mentioned the word battled. Um, is that in, oh no? A handsome, is that a handsome Art Howe reference?
3: That is, yes, you know, I I didn't mean it that way, but it must be it must be stuck in my head
4: <laughs> that, uh, that the handsome Art yeah. Howe
3: just might might be stuck in my head. <laughs> <laughs> That's that Mickey Calloway
4: for keep... those of you keeping track at home.
0: Sam, I'll let you close yes, that so round. Yes, Calloway's. Say it again, Mike. I said I'll let you close out round one.
2: I mean, I think everything has been said uh, that can be said. Uh, what, 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 what can I add? Uh, you know, Jeff McNeil is unsung. Um, Jacob Degrom could potentially make the Hall of Fame eventually, and Pete Alonso uh, has done everything he can to to be better. Uh, as, as and, and I, I run with the Dom, the Dominic Smith uh, part, too, is that Dominic Smith has been the first baseman of the future for a long time, but he hasn't been able to get it together, and he has been dicked around, as we've said. And I think it should be uh, echoed, what John said, about the fact that all of a sudden he's thrusted into – a, a, a non uh, consistent playing role, and and now he's forced himself to play all to have to be played all the time because he's finally a major leaguer. And if if it were you know if if they had trusted in the the process, then we could be talking about an entirely different season right now because maybe one of these players are hitting third instead of so Robinson know.
0: Alright, round two, we're gonna take this completely off the field. Unfortunately, uh Jim Bowden has passed away. He was born in nineteen thirty one, uh, excuse me, nineteen thirty nine and, and and died yesterday at eighty years of age. Uh he played with the Yankees. Uh Man won twenty game twenty one games for them and won thirty nine games for them over two seasons in nineteen sixty three, nineteen sixty four. Mm-hmm. But uh before there was a thing called TMZ before there was a book called Juice by Jose Canseco, before there was a National Enquirer, there was a book titled Ball Four by Jim Bowen in 1970. And that was very controversial back in the day. Uh, sensibilities back then were, were very different. And, and Rich, I'm going to start with you, and I'm going to ask you this way, you know, in addition to all your observations and, and your thoughts on Jim Bowden. I'm going to pose this to you. He was there with the Yankees for the last days of those dynastic decades. Let's let's call it what it is. The early 1960s was the end of a a four-decade-old dynasty. Uh, And he was also there for the decline. Uh, The club plunges into decline under CBS, Columbia Broadcasting System. Uh, and Steinburn is not in place yet, and to me, the timing is perfect. It's almost like a perfect storm uh that he should write that book at that time. Uh, do you think if the situation were a little bit different, had the Yankees still been in mid dynasty or had Georgia been in place at that time? Do you think this book ever gets written? rich
1: no no there's no way and um you know jim bowden represented I, I remember him and i think most people on this podcast would remember him as a sports broadcaster i believe on cbs channel Two, and and he's a very funny guy um and you could see you know if you read the book i think most of us mm-hmm. did you could see how he could have written it just by his personality on TV, you know, kind of like a dry, sarcastic wit, which is exactly what was the theme of the book. And Steinbrenner would never have allowed that something like that to go out, you know, because it kind of was a tell-all, just like everybody calls it, you know, it's a tell-all book, and you know and Steinbrenner was very much about image, he's very much about the professionalism professionalism of the Yankees, and there's no way. You know, if you remember the David Wells book, when it was in draft, and you know, and Steinbrenner had Brian Cashman read the the manuscripts to see what was coming. You know, the, it's sort of like that. I don't know if paranoia is the right word, but I, I don't see any way that Steinbrenner would have let let that book hit the shelves, or, or he would have tried to intervene in some way. And Bowden really, you know, it, it really Ball Four was kind of the first real tell-all book about um, that I could remember about baseball. Correct me if I'm wrong. If there's one that predates it, but you know, then then that became the, onto the Bronx Zoo book, and then you know many others from that point. But Bowden really, you know, cut some new ground there, and he was very much um, he was very precocious in that way to write a tell-all book that really told the fans, you know, the behind-the-scenes story that, you know, that we have no way of knowing. We have no way of knowing what those conversations are like, and and what the dynamic is like, and what these guys do when they're not on the field. And, and Bowden did that. You know, he talked about that, and um, and that I think paved the way for a lot a lot of other books that, that people have read. So, you know, Bowden was, he, he was bigger than the game, bigger than his career. He went on to do other things, and, and I think he was a trailblazer. So, and to answer your question, Mike, no, I think there's any way if Steinbrenner was running the Yankees at the time that that he would have let that book go out.
0: Uh, Mets Daddy, I, I present to you the same condition, you know, uh, just going off of what Rich said. You know, you either got to be first or best. And obviously he was first in this type of uh, manuscript, so to say. So, you know, observations of Jim Bowne, perhaps both for, for him as a ball player. You know, I was thinking
5: about this. Um, whole um, When they have the uh, celebration for the 69 Mets, um, what, people who haven't read the book, which I don't think includes people in this group, of course, He chronicled the 1969 season and just taking this for a minute to a slightly Mets-centric point of view of the book. Um, I remember I read Ball Four for the first time in 2005, I want to say. The thing that struck me and what people may or may not remember was um, he was a member of the Seattle Pilots, who got traded over to the Houston Astros as both the Mets and the Astros, um, or they may have been the 45s back then, I can't remember, were making their first ever push for the postseason. One of the things that I found remarkable was just his insight as a player as to why he knew the New York Mets were going to overtake the Chicago Cubs. Um, That's the type of insight we take for granted right now. Um, we don't get to hear players back of that generation talk about how the Cubs are going to choke at this Mets or this great upcoming team. There's nothing going to stop them. Um, Players, aside from Trevor Bauer, um, you don't really hear players ever speak out like stuff like that. Um, That's the thing that always fascinated to me is – People talk mostly about the shock value of that book. Um, the greats doing greenies, you know. You know, Mickey Mantle. You know, being you know Mickey Mantle, as we came to see him. But the thing that always stood out to me was just his putting into the book, not not this bullshit like we see like um, with these player autobiographies, where it's like, oh, yeah, I, I remember hitting that home run because my father was throwing whipple balls to me in the backyard. This was right off the bat. The Yankees fucked me over during salary negotiations. They tried to use DiMaggio as an example, and I said, well, DiMaggio was underpaid or something along those lines from the book. This was raw he was he was just saying, "This is who I am. This is what it's like being a ball player. Here is actual insight um fast forward to two thousand and nineteen on Twitter. I think these are the things we want to see from players, but we don't necessarily do um We want to hear from players, stuff like Chicago, like I'd love to hear um." a player nowadays say um, the the Phillies are going to fuck this up because Gabe Kapler is a psychopath manager and Bryce Harper is too much of a powder keg in that clubhouse with a, with an idiot like Kapler and that they this team has really fallen apart because McCutcheon was the only stabilizing force in the clubhouse. I'd love to hear a modern-day player put together a book like that The problem is, is Jim Bouton did it, and nobody's ever going to duplicate that again. Um, So just thinking about that, that's what I think about when I think about him right now is we've somewhat lost sight of the fact that, one, this is 50 years – this actually happened 50 years ago. His diary was created 50 years ago. Um, I don't think that's been celebrated enough this year. Um, and I still really haven't heard it mentioned in his passing because I think that's a pretty big deal, uh, especially when we talk about how '69 was this incredible year in America. Um, you know, we have, you know, man landing on the moon, we have the Vietnam War, we have everything else going on. And in this tiny baseball centric point of view, We have the Miracle Mets, um, and you have the seminal player sports book ever written. It was phenomenal for what it was, and it's relevant still today, 50 years later. But what's also incredible to think, because that book was written, you probably can never, ever write that book again, whether or not there's a Steinbrenner. Because, as we saw with a David Wells book or other people's books, or even Canseco's, I, did Canseco's really have the shock value that Bull 4 did? I would hazard a guess and say no. Um, so it's it's strange to think a 20-game winner for the New York Yankees, his indelible mark on society, was for writing a book. I, I don't think that's something I ever you ever would have thought have happened. Um, so, it, yeah, that that's where I am today is I think people need to take a step back and realize this is great for more than just what we acknowledge it to be. Um, this is a standard that can never be met. You can never write this book again. And like anything else, it's it's it for a Mets fan, this tiny tiny thing, it's the story of it's it's a little story almost like we do each of our blogs today. It's a little story as to how the Miracle Mets became the Miracle Mets. I bought that book in
0: nineteen eighty three at a garage sale. That's when I read it. Uh Coop, what say you?
4: Okay, well I'm actually embarrassed to say I've never read the book. Um I, I mean, I certainly know knew about it, and I'm not the only one in the Cooper Laro household. Ed never read it either, so I, uh. I have somebody here. <laughs> um, but um, I mean, hearing you guys, I I really need to read it. It's just something that, I mean, I I really love the the New York centric. Um, you know, a central reading of The Boys of Summer and Bums, and I even read, you know, box Amazing on the Mets, and um, there was, you can't even really call it a tell-all, Keith Hernandez's Chronicle of the 1985 season, if at first, dot, 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 and a lot of um, so I, I guess that, you know, ball four needs to be on my, my list of things. But, um, I actually thought, um, it was really interesting that, that John Metz daddy just said, um, that juice probably wasn't as shocking as it was because everybody knew about it. You know, Canseco was just kind of confirming, yeah, you know what, all the, all of us, we were shooting steroids in our asses. Like that was, that was kind of the story there. Um, But I think, you know, with ball four, it was was groundbreaking um, in a way um, since he was able to kind of get you behind the scenes. And here's the thing. I was really infuriated by Juice. I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine at that time about how I felt very strongly that what goes on in in the clubhouse should stay in the clubhouse. And if Canseco wanted to come out and say – yeah, I did him, that's cool. You know, he, he feels like he needs to have this confessional, but just throwing everybody under the bus, I just didn't think, I, I thought it broke some kind of rule. But it seems like the ball four kind of kind of did that too. It kind of gave you a glimpse into what was going on behind the scenes. Um, I mean, Mickey Mantle, I think everybody knows, it, it's like common knowledge that he was a drunk, and this is the first place that actually mentioned it. <laughs> so I, I think... Um, it's, you know, is there anything sacred in baseball? Um, you know, pro- probably not. <laughs> Maybe some of the, the hollowed kind of uh, stats. You know, you have you have Dimaggio's hitting streak that I don't think anybody's ever going to kind of break. Um, we're, we certainly won't see it in a single season. I can assure you of that. Um, but, you know, something, you know, the just kind of needs to put in a class of itself and it seems like that's what's going on with, with Ball 4 and I really should I really should read it because I have been getting slightly obsessed with the Seattle pilot so I probably should read it sooner rather than later.
0: Well Sam she breaks, Coop brings up Mickey Mantle and you know Ball 4 indeed have broke a lot of hearts. It it, it you know opens up a can of worms. Sam go ahead.
2: No I'm in Coop's territory. I haven't read it either and feel more embarrassed than anybody on this podcast uh, about that, that fact. Um, and I mean, I hadn't, until I read Skip Lockwood's book, I hadn't read a baseball book in a long, long time. Uh, when I was first coming up, uh, as a, as a fan, I remember reading October 1964, speaking of, of Jim Doughton and, and those years, um, and so I've, I had heard constantly how it was such a groundbreaking book, uh, and it, it's crazy to me that I haven't uh, taken the chance to. I mean, I think just listening to everybody, and, and even Coop, uh, who hadn't read it, you know, did a great job of, of explaining how Jose Canseco's wasn't all that shocking and, and kind of tying, like, like, showing the differences between generations and how, uh, you know, we all knew the whispers uh, one way or the other. And, and you know, I, although when when Kinseko first came out, some people were like, oh, he has no credibility, but it turned out that he would, you know, everything was most certainly true. But I think it's, what, what I, as somebody who hasn't read it, uh, and, and, as not as familiar with, uh, Jim Bowden. I just, it, it's, it's unfortunate that it's taken his death to celebrate the book in the 50th anniversary. And I was actually unaware that it had been written that long ago, or at least I had not remembered that it had been written that long ago. So what, what Met's Daddy, uh, brought up about how it's not being celebrated enough that it was 50 years ago, uh, is is a big deal that, that that's huge. Um, I it's just the the impact that he has left on the baseball fan and its insight into how everything works. Um, that I think is my observation about it. Is is, mm-hmm. is you know just we're we're on a Mets podcast and even though there is that 1969 connection. Uh, we had to talk about Jim Bouton because it, it, it's, it's baseball. And that's that's basically where I'm coming uh, from as having not read it. It's just the observation of how much of an impact Jim Bouton had uh, on the baseball fan and his understanding of the story of this great game.
0: Mr. Coppinger, let me play contrarian here for a second at your expense. Should the book be celebrated? W- wasn't he a rat? And again, I'm just playing contrarian here. Um,
3: you know, I think people that will go and read the book now and compare it to ha- the things that have happened, the, the, our our 24-hour news cycle now with Twitter and and Instagram and all of these things, they might not be as shocked by it as they as they were back then. If all I I guess we have that uh we we have that lens of knowing everything before. I mean we knew Mickey Mantle's uh, drinking habits. We know all this. So when you read it back then, it wasn't uh it, it isn't so shocking. Um it, I think it should be celebrated. Listen, it's a part of baseball Americana. It's it is a part of the story that this game tells. Like everybody said, you know, without ball four, you may not have some of the other tell-alls that, or not tell-alls, but just really good baseball books and baseball writing that you've seen from some players. And Boughton started it all. He was a uh, he was a pioneer in that regard. But I also I also want to take this from a different angle, if I could, because Boughton uh, wrote the book. It came out in 1970. Okay. 1970 not so coincidentally was the was the last season that he pitched for a long time now if this was something that happened today somebody who who pitched last in the majors at 31 5 years out of the game how many times have you seen somebody come back and make it back to the pinnacle of their maybe not the pinnacle but but pitching in a major league uniform or or playing uh, any sport at at its highest level, I think it's worth noting that Jim Bouton did that. Bouton, when you hear all of the uh, all of the uh, platitudes towards his that have gone his way after his passing, everybody says that he loved the game. Like he would he would pitch in charity games and and he would get lit up, but he didn't care because he just loved he loved pitching. He loved the game. He loved playing it. And when you see his career arc. This was a guy who spent five seasons away from the game, probably because no major league team wanted to employ him after writing a tell-all book back then. The first, the first of its kind. People were scared, but he toiled in the minors starting in 1975 at the age of 36, and then back again in 77 at the age of 38, and then after having a a good uh, 20 games in Savannah in in 78 the Braves brought him up and he came he made his return to baseball 8 years after that book came out and 8, eight years after teams were somewhat wary of him if that doesn't show that somebody loves the game the way the way about it showed with Bouton, then I don't know what does you talk about the the Conseco juice book it almost kind of had a, a a uh, a tone of disdain for the game disdain for what got you there and I think that goes to what Coop said about if keeping things in the clubhouse if somebody who's not willing to do that is has some sort of disdain for the game on some level but that was never the case with Bouton he just wanted to take people inside and show them uh, what has been going on in the game and I think I think it shows in the end, it shows a love of the game that Boughton had, and I think for that alone,
0: the book should be celebrated. okay, well said, sir. uh let's talk uh about the stems. Let's get back to baseball. There's no debating the following: the Mets are forty and fifty that's a four 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 winning percentage. They need to go forty one and thirty one Excuse me, I don't know what I just said, so I'll repeat myself. They need to go 41-31 and to finish the season at 500. Now, here's the debatable part. The trade deadline, it's a new deadline. It comes early. It's a firm deadline. No waivers. Less opportunity for the Mets to waiver. Uh, They can't be as wishy-washy. So, uh, that said, let's talk trade deadline. Potential, you know, guys in the mix in the conversation on the move, whatever have you, Zach Wheeler is making headlines. So uh, what say you, Mr. Daddy? <sighs>
5: you know, it's funny. Um, I-, I guess to plug my site for a minute, I-, I know tomorrow I'm publishing, and I didn't want to do this, Um but I didn't anyway, initially as an intellectual exercise, and then it turned into me talking um, myself into something. Um, The Mets have a chance out of the break um, to get back to 500 relatively quickly. Um, We've heard rumblings that the Mets may not sell um, where they're actually looking to buy relievers. <clears throat> if the Mets go off on this road trip nine and one, maybe we have a different conversation. Um, but realistically speaking, let's be honest, uh, the season's over and they should be sitting there and telling teams, what do you, What are you going to give me for Zach Wheeler? Um in an ideal world, you, you, you'd, you'd attach Zach Wheeler, you'd tell anyone, give me a bag of balls, you can have Zach Wheeler and Robinson Cano together. But nobody's going to do this. Because you would have to be the most insanely stupid GM on the planet to take on Robinson Cano's contract to win now. Um, mm.
2: <laughs>
5: yep. <laughs> Had to get that shot in there. Um. If I'm the Mets, look, are you getting anything for Todd Frazier? No. Are you getting anything for Jason Vargas? No. Um. So then that so it begs the question: If I'm the Mets, I know we are hearing a lot of talk about Noah Syndergaard. You can't trade him, and here's the reason why. If you trade Syndergaard, and then you're going to decline Vargas's option. And then you've already traded Wheeler. This team, as constituted, cannot afford to fill in three-fifths of their rotate, rotation in an offseason. First reason, we know the Wilpons won't spend the money. It doesn't matter that there's nearly $40 million coming off the books. They're not going to spend that type of money. Let's just put that out of our heads. Second reason, look at the organization. Maybe Anthony Kay is ready. Maybe. We don't know. I don't think anyone can know. Uh, The way he's going in AAA, he's struggling with the new baseball, like much of the Mets' current staff. I really don't foresee a September call-up for him, which means we're going to see a lot of Walker Lockett, which means we're going to be fighting for the number one pick. Um so then, your next option is well, let's just move Gesselman and uh, I'm sorry Gazellman and Lugo back to the rotation. Okay, let's let's plug those three in and let's hope it works out. Well, you took an already horrid bullpen and you took out their two, arguably their two best arms. If you have any hopes of contending in 2020, any hopes, and as the Mets are constituted, I. What are, what are they honestly away from contending next year? Um, a rebound from a couple of their relievers, someone who's actually capable of playing center field. And I don't know. I mean, they're not that far off. I know this sounds incredibly stupid to say. I still believe this team is not far off. It's one or two deaf touches away, Those, but that's not going to happen. Um, this year. I don't, even though I'm, I'm, I can talk myself into contending this year, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think anyone in their real right mind is going to. Um, but I know we're focusing on Syndergaard because the press is out there. The, the one guy I desperately want to see moved more than anyone is Wilson Ramos. Let's be honest, it's not working. The Grom doesn't want to pitch to him. Um, Syndergaard doesn't want to pitch to him, whether or not he wants to stay. Right there, you took your starting catcher, and you made him into a timeshare with Tomas Nito. Here's another interesting fact um, I heard on the radio today. You know all those saves, Edwin Diaz has blown, every single one of those saves was with Wilson Ramos behind the plate. And one of the reasons why is this guy is leading the majors in pass balls. There's something like 17 wild pitches with him behind the plate. The guy just – he's Bartolo – he's an unathletic Bartolo Colon back there. He's not moving. He's not doing anything to help this staff. So what he's essentially done is in an era where you want to work more north-south of the strike zone than east and west, is he's cutting off the bottom half of the plate because the pitchers can't attack it for two reasons. One, he's not going to catch it if it goes down there. Two, he can't frame it. So what's happening is all of their starting pitchers, their balls are coming up, and then everywhere where the balls are flying out of the park because they're juice ready to being hit out of the park. Look, it, it hasn't worked. He's, I think, amongst catchers with at least, uh, what was it? I ran the numbers, like 200 plate appearances. He's 15th in WRC+. So he's not really hitting. He can't catch a lick. Cut your losses. Find a team, any team that's going to take him, and then you go into next off season. You admit your mistake. You get Grandal. The Mets get Grandal. We can talk about contending in 2020, but as it as it constitutes, you keep you keep Wilson Ramos. This team isn't going to win anything next year with him behind the plate. And sooner or later, you're going to have even more turmoil in that clubhouse than you already have. Um So, look, the obvious thing is you need to trade Wheeler because he's eh, Wheeler, Vargas, and Frazier. But if I'm the Mets, I table these discussions on Syndergaard if I want to contend next year, and I'm pushing to trade Wilson Ramos, and I'm doing it sooner rather than later because I want to see what Thomas Nito is also made out of from here to the end of the season. And when you add in the fact that Ali Sanchez has finally started hitting somewhat in – in Binghamton, and Patrick Mazica has started hitting in Binghamton. You want to They're both Rule 5 eligible. You kind of want to figure out if either one of them are any good and maybe take a look at them. You're not doing that with Wilson Ramos, and Wilson Ramos is not the future. It, for me, he's not the future next week. He's not the future in September. He's not the future in 2020. The sooner you move away from him, the better everything with his organization gets, and that's where I'm at with the trade deadline.
0: Rich, that deadline is right around the corner. And like I said, it's different. Uh, And the Mets would need 57% of their games just to finish 500. Should they be buyers, sellers? Should they hold? Me personally, I should have been a demolitions expert because I'm dying to blow this up. So what say you?
1: Well, when I hear about them interested in Shane Green and other relievers, I I laugh because they shouldn't be buying. Then I say to myself, what in the world could they give the Tigers? You know, they have a depleted farm system. You know, thank goodness they had a good draft to at least have the beginning of repairing that farm system. But what could they possibly interest the Tigers with? I I don't understand it. What, why do Tigers even deal with the Mets? So I think the whole thing is a bunch of BS that's gotten out there. I think they will sell. And I think I don't think there will be a wholesale selling process. I think it will be Wheeler. I'm glad to hear what John said because I was having that conversation with somebody at work today where if they trade Syndergaard, uh, Vargas, and Wheeler, despite you know, even before you even start thinking about returns and all that kind of thing, you've now gutted your pitching staff, and you don't have arms ready like the Padres do, like the Braves did. You don't have that to come in and take their spots. What in the living hell are you going to do to put a starting rotation together next year, especially, as John said, given the fact that you won't be spending a lot of money in free agency because the Mets simply don't. They don't spend on the top tier guys. So I don't think, you know, making all these massive moves at the deadline is even realistic for the Mets. So what I think they will do is I do think they'll find a taker for Wheeler because they don't want to pay him. Um, I think they'll find a taker for Vargas and they'll get, you know, virtually nothing for him, maybe get nothing for Frazier, and that'll be it. They'll trade expiring contracts and what they'll probably get back is very, very modest returns, a bunch of Ryder Ryans. And um, and that's unfortunate. You know, it's unfortunate because at some point they have to start thinking about this roster. Now, maybe you don't do it at the trade deadline, maybe you do it in the offseason, but there's a lot of work to be done. How about starting with this? How about starting with getting guys to actually play in position. How about, think about what are the Mets getting out of center field. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but how many teams are getting that kind of putrid production out of center field? And, and Conforto is not a center fielder. I, I consider him to be a corner outfielder. Your center fielder is the guy who should be there but has lost his job is Ligaris. You're getting nothing out of him. They have to think about getting a genuine center fielder so Conforto can go to a corner where he belongs. And McNeil could probably play left. Uh, obviously, we'd like to have him at second base, but we all know that's not happening. Maybe he can go to, he can go to third if Frazier is traded. So I do think you'll see, realistically, what you'll see is the movement of expiring contracts and typical Mets. They'll get back very modest returns and then do the same thing next year. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll try to fill in what they traded, and that's unfortunately what I see happening. I don't see them really making those bold moves for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them being, how would you backfill these guys? And, and the one thing I'll say in closing is, whether it's at the deadline or whether it's in the off season, I'd love to see them get creative. You know, wh- if you're going to trade a Wheeler, we all like Dom Smith. I like Dom Smith. Dom Smith doesn't belong on this team. He's, not, he's the first baseman. He's a first baseman. He could maybe fill in in the outfield. Alonzo's your first baseman. Dom Smith has value. You package Dom Smith and Wheeler. Maybe now you can get something back. Maybe you could start thinking about filling that center field hole that way. So my challenge to the Mets is what it always has been. Rather than doing this guy here, that guy there, that guy there, Ryder Ryan here, Drew Smith there, what about packaging a couple of guys and trying to get something of value back? You know, trying, trying to think about – using your assets that way, instead of a bunch of meaningless one-off deals. So that, that, that's my take on the trade deadline.
0: Mets was still talking trade strategy. Uh, typical Mets. I agree with that, but rich wants them to be more creative. Let me complicate matters. And I'm going to give a little shout out to Mets Morized online. They had an article out regarding Familia and who wanted to sign them and who didn't. And, and I'm talking about the front office. So, does the front office have too many hands in the cookie jar? And the second part of that, and, and this is a, a familiar aspect of this whole thing, uh, you know, Fred Wilpon's collegial front office uh, model. Are we going to be able to get around that? So, Mr. Mr. Thomas, what do you say?
3: I say I'm scared. You know, well, I I'm uh, I'm worried. I, I I am. I'm I'm worried. I, I do think. To a point, Rich is right. I think they're going to do what we expect them to do. I think Wheeler's going to go. I think somehow they're going to fumble it and not get as much as they should for Wheeler or they're not going to get as much as another general manager can. Yeah, if you could package him with Cano, you, you probably should. But it's you know, like, uh, like Daddy said, listen. There's not a there's there's 29 general managers that aren't insane enough to take on Robinson Cano's contract. Unfortunately, we have the 30th general manager, who hasn't been a general manager for very long, and that's what scares me. <laughs> it scares me because, and it scares me because okay, he's going to trade Wheeler. We know he's not going to get that much. Fine, I, I, he's not he's not going to get much for Fraser or Vargas. And I don't think any general manager can spin that yarn into gold. So that's fine. Now, I say what I'm about to say as a, as a Noah Syndergaard apologist. I agree with Daddy. I don't think they should trade him. I think he's got an excellent career ahead of him, and I think he's the guy – he's the lottery ticket that we won. We won him by trading a 37-year-old Cy Young Award winner, and we got this supreme talent who who's having a down year, yes, but there's there's so many factors involved in that. Like, uh, you know, listen, Wilson Ramos is one of them. The slicker baseballs is another one of them. The fact that he, maybe he's tinkered with, he's been tinkering with his slider too much, that's that's another one of them. But I'll, I will say this. I think that eventually you have to think about re-signing Syndergaard because if you're going to do this, if you're going to keep – this pattern going of trading guys in their walk year, if that's what you, if that's what the Mets are ultimately going to do with Syndergaard because they don't want to pay for starting pitching, then you might as well trade him now. Because he's at his peak value right now, or actually he was at his peak value a year ago, but with two more years of control, there are teams that are salivating over him. Think of think of what the Padres can do with him in that ballpark. Think of what the Astros can do with him with Pine tarp. This is – you know, these are these – are t- if with all of these teams salivating over them, shouldn't that tell them Mets something? You know, if they're going to wait until it's walkier and then trade them for, for garbage, then don't even bother. Don't even bother. Then just trade them now and just – and and lift the veil and just let everybody know, hey, we're the Oakland A's now. Because if that's who you are, then just be honest with us. I don't think they should tr- – I don't think they should trade and, – and I'm scared that this general manager is the one in place – to do it because I didn't trust him after the Kalanick deal. I didn't trust him after that. So I sure as heck don't trust him now to, to accurately assess his own assets, let alone in other teams. And as it, as it comes to Familia, reunions don't work. It didn't work with Jay Bruce because he was a good player, bad fit. Familia, same thing. Can we ever just get some new, Players, some new stars instead of bringing back the old, the same old tired old guys. It's I, it's it's familiar. Numbers. I, I was reading that Mets article that those numbers have been dipping from 2016 on. Sequels suck. Brett Myers actually said that, and I and I can't stand Brett Myers, but he's right in <laughs> when it comes to that. Sequels do suck. I think the Mets would be mindful to follow that rule in the future.
2: Sam, the floor is yours. Well, Toy Story 3 is actually my favorite. Uh, I haven't seen Toy Story 4 yet, but uh, I'll have to re loop back around to the whole sequels thing. But, but uh, not contemporary. I really want Toy Story 3. Yes, of <laughs> course. And, you know, let's not even get into Empire Strike Back being poetry on film. But uh, like you said, there are exceptions. Um, you know, Rich mentioned the Wolfons, and I think, unfortunately, You know, even though trade deadline strategy is the category right now, it got me thinking when saying that they don't spend on top-tier players. Obviously, you know, they've spent on Johannes, but then we recognized that a lot of teams were weary of basically what happened with him, as much as he still, for the period that we had him on the field, one of my favorite Mets of all time. but it might not just be that they don't spend on top talent. It's kind of also what we've heard with some of the top front office talent that they were trying to get. It might be a Dolan situation where people don't want to deal with them because they know what, how they are. They, 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 they make sure that you can't get a Jeff McNeil uh, jersey because there's no ease left. <laughs> it's little details of that nature uh, that that seem to come back and bite them. Um, you 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 know, Pedro is an all time talent, and he didn't speak well of specifically Jeff Wilpon, and and most people just know how they operate and don't want to generally across the board deal with them. And it might not just be that they won't spend the money, which I think is obviously clearly a factor. It also might be that people don't want to be on the Mets because they know that there's going to be there, there's a New York team, uh, uh, you know, north of Citi Field that is going to be a lot less of a headache, as much as they sometimes have their dysfunction as well. And that's why you see them getting getting star after star after star, not just because they will spend the money, but because people know that they're going to be happy there. It's You know, you're in the same city. People want to be traded to New York. Not everybody, obviously, but people want to play in New York. And they also have heard from former Mets players how much fun it is when you have a winning team in New specifically Queens. And people from 2015 and 2016 know how much fun that was to have the whole city behind you. The Mets are a fun franchise. The Wilpons aren't fun owners. And that is, that's basically all I can say. Everything's been said about how they should approach this, this off season, this uh, trade deadline, excuse me. And I, I think the Wilson-Ramos effect was very, very uh, intriguing to me, uh, especially when uh, Mets' daddy brought up the Edwin Diaz stuff because one of his best games recently was when Tomas Nito had him throw fastball after fastball after fastball, something that Starblazer, I think I already mentioned this on the last podcast, but Starblazer was telling me that's what he should do next time, and it worked. Now, the next game, he didn't even have an opportunity leading up to the all-star game because the Mets never had a lead. So, and I'm also to go with that with Tomas Nito. He's been hitting a lot better whenever he gets the chance. He hasn't been a complete black hole from a hitting perspective. And it is intriguing to see, to think about seeing what else he could be made of as well as seeing what some of these other catching prospects are made of. So, Are they going to be able to move Wilson Ramos? Probably not. But, and and again, and Mike, I'll loop it. This is a good way of finishing because I know you've brought up about it. Will Brody ever admit defeat? And trading Wilson Ramos will be him basically saying, this has failed. And we don't know yet whether he can do that.
0: You know, know, in order for some of these things. To transpire, Brody must admit, my plan failed. So we're going to regroup, and this is where we're headed now. I don't foresee that happening. Just to back up what you said and Daddy said for that matter regarding Diaz, uh, according to Fangraph, his rate of line drives and fly balls are up, and his rate of ground balls are down. He's throwing his fastball slightly more and his slider. Slightly left. His velocity is relatively unchanged. Just throwing it out there. He only has four blown saves. Uh, he accounts for 83% of the Mets' saves. The problem, really, I mean, his numbers are sloppy. Sloppy is all hell, like the bottom of a birdcage. But the problem lies elsewhere. With four blown saves with, from Lugo, four blown saves from Gisselman. Four blown, excuse me, three blown saves from Bachelor, four blown saves from Familia. And and right there, you're talking about more than, you know, more than half of of the responsibility of what's been going on. But that's not the whole picture, and I don't want to digress into that just yet. I want to spin it back to Coop. Same thing, trade diets, excuse me, trade deadline strategy. You speak on behalf of two humans at home and a bear. So collectively, <laughs> what say you?
4: That that's an unfair um, it, advantage too. I I know the bear the bear's got more brains than the, than the two of us. So um, that that said, I can't help but think. And again, I, I'm going to bring up post traumatic disorder again, John. Uh, <laughs> Metro honest. Yeah. I'm ready. That, um, the I think Jim Duquette. So I know that this is PTMD to like the nth degree. Um, Jim Duquette, who I think is actually a really good analyst for SNY, go figure. Um, obviously he did one of the worst trade deadline deals in the history of the franchise. And we're talking about a franchise that traded their, their elite future hall of fame or pitcher, but I'm not going to go down that road right now. Although I just did. So whatever. Um, I, I couldn't help but think about um, about eight years ago when I was writing for the, uh, the old site, Kiner's Corner, I had written a Top 50 Notorious Mets column that took about a week, and it was during the All-Star break. And um, Jim Duquette made that list as one of the executives uh, of the Top 50 Notorious Mets. And uh, Fred Solomon, who also, I believe, coined the Handsome Art Howe, um, said,
2: yes, hey, that Jimmy, was him. Don't,
4: yeah, yeah, don't trade your number one pitching prospect when you're six games out by the deadline. It looks really bad when you're nine games out three days later. Who doesn't think that Brody Van Wagenen would do something like that? Like, do something so short-sighted that he would uh, – this team that, that is under 500, I don't think that they have a chance uh, in hell um, unless they pull a Cleveland Indians major league with a wild thing Vaughn. Uh, type of type of run at the end of the year that they're gonna you know win just despite the Wilpons who I am convinced is you know like the the owner in in Major League who wants them to lose who who doesn't really want them to win he wants to keep our interest just enough because these la- the last few times that they've gone that they've done anything has almost been an accident there hasn't been any kind of long term plan Brody van wagonen doesn't even have a long term plan the only thing i'll say is in brody's defense is that he does think outside of the box that he's not afraid to take a risk however I keep looking back at this line that Fred said about eight years ago about Jim Duquette, that it's just not going to be a good look if you pull the trigger just to make a deal. Sometimes the best deals are the ones not made. Um, in fact, uh, in that same column, and I'll, I'll move on to the to the next point of, uh, of contact here, was um, something that Ed had written in response about Jim Duquette was uh, the ill-fated 2004 trade and not Casimir for Zambrano, but the Jose Bautista and Ty Wigginson for Mr. Anna Benson. So <laughs> this is what happens, is that Jose Bautista went on to have this amazing career, probably Hall of very good, and, you know, the Mets who needed a bat like Jose Bautista in, you know, a few years later, it just, it, it just seems like, oh my goodness, like, can, can we not do this, people? So then this brings me to another article that I wrote about a few years ago called the Mets are a bunch of assholes. And what I mean by that is they just do not think ahead. Um, The Wilpons, and to piggyback on something Sam said, that the Mets can be a really fun team, but the Wilpons aren't fun owners, and you're absolutely right. That's the common denominator here, that this team is never going to be good. They're never going to compete. They're never – because – the second that the Wilpons got involved, and that was, you know, it was Fred and Uncle Saul who got involved, and they, as soon as they got 50% and started to have more of a say in the, in the operations, what did they do? They trade Kevin Mitchell for Kevin McReynolds. Now, I'm sure every single one of us on here could debate for hours about, well, Kevin McReynolds, he wasn't a bad player. He was always really good. He was an MVP candidate in 88, blah, 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 blah. But they kind of traded the heart and soul you know, and a future MVP, mind you, um, for, to kind of pitch this family-friendly alternative. Okay, so let's think about that for a second. Um, I think, John Metz-Daddy, I think you and I might be around the same age. Do you have memories of the 86 team? Like vivid memories of the 86 team?
5: Not vivid, but I do have memories of them.
4: Okay, let me tell you something, honey. I was 10 years old when they won the World Series in 86. And I fucking love that team. I'm really sick and tired of people using this excuse, but what about the children? What will we tell the children? You know, what will we tell the children that four Mets got arrested in Houston for starting a barroom Brawl? Or what will we tell the children that, you know, Doc Gooden and Daryl Strawberry are bad guys who do drugs? You know what? I say fuck it because that team was fucking awesome. They kept my ass in the seat. I wanted to see those games. And I love that they fought. Like they had how many bench clearing brawls that year? That was awesome. So we don't really have, I don't really even know if that type of uh, like player could even exist in, in today's game. But I would say that a lot of the quote unquote superstars that they kind of push on us are the milk toast guys. It's the David Wright guys. And, it, you know, I'm sure everybody here, you know, we love David Wright, blah, 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 blah. He was the easy pick. Like he was, the boring guy who would be like, you betcha, and Mets are going to win, and blah, blah, blah. And it just, they, it ties into the whole philosophy that the Mets don't know what they're doing because they're a bunch of assholes. So I do not trust them to make a good, thought-out trade deadline move, because it's going to end up being like Jim Duquette's move in 2004. It's going to screw the team over, and then they're going to do some kind of switch. And they might win, they might keep us involved and intrigued just enough, and then they're going to, you know, strike out looking uh, with the winning runs on base and uh, just about every single post-traumatic meth disorder thing that you could think of. So let's talk about Wilson Ramos, because I, I think um, to say, I, th- I don't think that we're giving Brody enough credit. And, of course, I'm saying this because I'm throwing him under the bus at the same time because he does think outside of the box and I really don't think that he's afraid to admit that he has, you know, that he needs to make some changes that, okay, what I thought was going to be the move really wasn't it. And I need to cut my losses. Why I have, um, so talking about Wilson Ramos, let us I don't even want to talk about Wilson Ramos cause I, I want him gone. Let's talk about Thomas Nito has any, does anybody here know anything about his background? Cause I I, I, I up, can
5: fill you in there if you want.
4: Well, I I, I can, I can or maybe we can we can help each other because he comes from a really extended athletic family background. I did not know this. He's 25 years old. His his mother played several. Um, she was an Olympic athlete, so she was like Michael Conforto's mother. Um, and his entire it seems like his entire uh, patrilineal side had our, our tennis
2: legends
4: on the island so we have this guy who's got athleticism in his dna he's not even fucking playing are you kidding me give him a chance you know i would rather lose with the young guys than win a game here or there with these crusty old guys who don't know what the fuck they're doing so this is what i'm gonna come around and say um first wheeler's as good as gone um, I think that he's the most tradable commodity. Um, he could really help out a team. I saw that um, you know, the Red Sox were really interesting. I think he'd be a good fit there. Um, I, I would like to see him succeed. Um, he's done good for us, but you know, it's like, sorry, Zach, it's, you know, <laughs> it's not us, it's you. you got to go. <laughs> um, the next thing I, I want to say is, why the hell are we holding on to Steven Mapps? Do you know how much shit I got for defending Jonathan Joseph niece every fifth day? Stephen Mets is the same goddamn pitcher, but he's got what? He's from Long Island. He's got a cool grandpa. Get rid of him. I'm sick of watching his ass blow up one inning a game and then getting the Mets out of the game in the first inning, and then they can't come back. Sorry. He, he, can, he can do that on another team that's willing to kind of work with him because he does have good stuff. It's just, it's just not going to happen with the Mets. Uh, lastly, I think, uh, you know, we, we do need to, you know, think creatively, which is why I think Brody, you know, might, might surprise us, but don't think that it's going to be, you know, oh, the Mets are going to make the playoffs if they do X, Y, and Z. They're not going to make the fucking playoffs. So let's just, you know, they're not going to make the wild card. They're not going to make the playoff. We're just going to f- try to finish and play the quote unquote meaningful games of September. And, you know, let's get rid of Frazier while we're at it. Um, because he could he could help and get some you know good pieces uh, he could help you know obviously playoff teams or teams in contention he's got kind of that you know veteran leadership quality that people look for and blah 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 um, and, you know I think I think he's as good as gone too and I would probably cry if they traded Noah Syndergaard um, and the coup has spoken.
2: Uh, so before anybody else jumps in, let me tell you what you tell the children. Eventually, they're going to find out Santa Claus isn't real. The Brooklyn Dodgers <laughs> and the New York Giants are going to move away, and uh, yeah, that's that's. I had one more, but I totally spaced on it. Eventually, <laughs> children mm-hmm. grow up.
4: I, eventually, am I, gonna grow up I'm going to jump
3: in yeah. here too because we're talking about like on uh, uh, thinking outside the box and uh, entertainment value and and fights with the '86 Mets. And I, I was thinking, you know, that the, the best. The best rivalry we have now with the Mets is Todd Frazier versus Adam Eaton, which is really sad. But then I thought, <laughs> wow. you know what? Just just for the pure entertainment value of it, we should trade Todd Frazier for Adam Eaton. Wow. I, th- I think that I think that would create some complexes, and I think that would be a lot of fun.
5: You know, we're talking we're talking Brody outside the box, and we're talking Detroit Tigers. I think it was Sam who said, well, "What the fuck do we have to offer the Tigers? Are there three-way deals out there where the Mets are sending Todd Frazier to, let's say, just just choose a team off the top of your head, like the Rays, where Frazier goes to, the, to Rays, the Rays?
4: Yeah, he would, the Tigers, he would the
5: Tigers send the Mets like Green, and then you know the Rays have like a plethora of bullshit prospects that they could send to the Tigers, like." If if Brody is this thinking outside the box guy, is he on the phones saying to teams, look, I need to do what I can do with Vargas and with Frazier? Is there three-way deals where I can't get anything for them, so get me the bullshit seventh inning guy from another team and you send me the guy that you were going to send me anyway to that team? All right. I actually, I,
4: I I hear that. I think that's a, that, I hope Brody, you know, if Brody's sitting with the seven-line army at a game, he should be listening to this, to this podcast to see what real fucking Mets fans think.
5: Yeah, he's not listening because we're not going to blow smoke up his ass.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what they are talking about, they being outlets, is Thor becoming a closer. And I'm listening. I'm not saying that's a good idea or bad idea, but I'm listening and I'm intrigued, but I just want to revert back to a couple of numbers before this trade deadline hits and 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 just have these Mets really consider what 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 it is they're doing and i again, I'll submit that all right Diaz's numbers are just ugly, but again, he only has four blown saves he's accounting for eighty three percent of the Met's total save. Giselman, Lugo, Camilla, and Bash are two for seventeen. That's eighty-eight percent blown saves. So I just ask, where's the real problem here? And I will close my eyes, point my pen at something, and come up with Rich.
1: Well, at this point. You know, when the bullpen's as bad as it, it's been, I don't think you could put any option off the table to try to improve it. I think we all know that um, while there are flaws in roster construction, guys playing out of position, the starting pitching underachieving, all of that, the primary culprit for where the Mets find themselves at forty and fifty is the bullpen. So. Any solution should be on the table. Now, that said, um, I like the idea of trying to get creative at the deadline, like I said, and and if it means three-way trades, why not? If you could bring in a piece, I'm just not sure they can, but if they can, great. Now, internal options, turning Thor into a closer. You know, I'm not a really big fan of teaching guys new roles on the major league level. Um, I go back to Ron Gantt, for those who remember that example. Uh, I believe it was in the late 80s or early 90s when Ron Gantt was changing positions and they sent him to single A ball from the major leagues. Okay, we want you to be, I think he was in, an outfielder, wanted to be a second baseman or vice versa. And they sent him to single A ball and he did it. And he learned the position down there, honed the craft to the best visibility, and became a successful major leaguer at that position. Well, that's, you know what, that's probably what it takes. You know, when you're in the big leagues, these are the best ball players in the world. You're trying to compete against them out of position. Yes, it could work every now and then. You could have a Robin Yount who changes positions and does well. Of course it does. But I would argue that uneducated guess, what, 70%, 80% of the time it doesn't work? Or, or doesn't work to the degree you think it might? So if you're going to turn Thor into a closer, I, I don't know. I mean, do you think you could just snap your fingers and take this guy who started his whole life and say, now you're in the bullpen, now you're a closer? it's probably more of a long-term thing where you'd have to get them thinking about it in the off-season, have them go to Port St. Lucie for spring training, in that new role, let them work out you know, the differences in the warm-up routines and the differences in the recovery routines, all that stuff. I, you know, I, I just don't think it's as... It's not like playing stratomatic baseball where you have a card in your hand. You have a human being who has to learn something, and I think it's very difficult to learn that new thing on this level. And we have plenty of examples of, of failure in the Mets organization at doing that exact thing. So... In summary, should that option be off the table? Nothing should be off the table. Should doing it on the major league level be an option? I don't think so. If, if you want to look at it, look at it next year. Get them ready for it. Let them go through a spring training doing it. Maybe. That that would be my take on it.
0: It's been done before. I, I mean, forgive me for putting Syndergaard in the same sentence with Spolts and Eckersley, but, you know, it's been done before. That said, I'll hand it over to Mr. Coppinger.
3: yeah, I'm with Rich on it. I think a lot of times when a uh when a position position switch fails, it's because it's done on the fly uh like you said with Ron Gantt, going down to the majors the going down to the minors, going down to single a to learn a position and coming up that's that's the way you do it. It's not really may, might not be feasible now, but you do it in spring training. What the Mets like to do is Hit about 20 fly balls to a guy in in the outfield and say, okay, you're ready. You know, they did it with Todd Hundley. It happened mid season. Went one some well. Dominic Smith, same thing. I think of how bad Dominic Smith looked in the outfield last year, when he when he was uh, shoved into doing it on on the fly. I, I think it's different with pitchers. I think I, I actually think pitchers have a better chance to do it in season than a position player. Because it's just about managing your rest and managing your your workload. Uh, to, to have uh, Syndergaard do it when he's never really done it before, I think that might be dicey. If you're going to think about it, yeah, I, I'm with Rich. You do it in the off season. Now, this isn't the first time that uh, the Mets or the media have been talking about making Syndergaard a closer. Uh, when he when he first came up, I, I feel like that they've been talking about, well, maybe he should be the closer. And and yeah, it does work with other guys. It worked with Smoltz because he was coming out off surgery, and uh, it worked with uh, who was the other guy, Rich, that you said? Oh, Eckers- oh Eckersley. Yeah, it worked with Eckersley just because he was damn good. And I don't think and I don't think that 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 switch was made middle of the season either. I think to do it in the middle of the, of the season is dicey. Uh, and I and I, and I don't, I'm not sure if, uh, Syndergaard is at that point in his career where you where you would say changing his role to be a closer would really have a positive effect on his career at this point. Maybe down the road, perhaps, but I don't think now is that time, and I don't think that it would pay dividends for the Mets. I, I think it would be a waste, honestly. But it, yeah, nothing should be off the table, but I'd be very sketchy about doing this, especially especially in season. But I don't know if I would do it
0: ever. It also, you, the game, you
3: know, it, it also worked in Game Five of the NLDS. Yes, it, it 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 did well. Well, that was listen. Playoffs are are a whole different animal, too. In playoffs, you do you do what you're told to do, and if whatever it, whatever it takes to win, you do. I think that's I think that's a different ballpark to to make this. That's different than making a more permanent switch when you're when you're ten games out. I I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't touch it now.
0: I agree, the playoffs are different. Sam, you wanna you wanna keep on that?
2: Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. Um I think I, I think the only thing that I take away is that he was ready uh for for the switch. Obviously I, I can't remember whether it was his throw day, what the rotation was like. Um but I I mean and, and this, and what I'm about to say doesn't necessarily. I'll also play devil's advocate when I say this: that he's been pretty solid in the first inning this year, and then it's that second inning where things start to go a little awry. Uh, but you're not also not always going to be facing the, t- the first three hitters. Uh, you're going to be facing three, four, five. You're going to be facing two, three, four, maybe even the bottom of the barrel. But um, I, I, I think that Noah may like if you, I, I think it was the Cincinnati Reds, and I know they're not that good, but the game where he hit the solo home run and 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 shut them out in nine innings, the one of the biggest differences between him in that game and him in other games was that bulldog face that he just had. He was determined that if the offense isn't hitting, I'm going to hit. And then I'm going to shut this team down. You just saw it on his face the entire game. And if you also look at it, he was he was a lot more even keeled with his selection of pitches. Um, and it obviously it depends from game to game how the that the ball feels in your hand, how it feels coming out of your hand, uh, and, and what you're working with, who you're facing. Of course, you're going to be strategizing differently. Um, But that bulldog mentality might translate well whenever they decide to do it into the closer situation. Now, we're also talking about this because of how much Edwin Diaz has struggled. And I will keep going back. He was, you know, not struggling the same way before they get him around in that rain game where they had him – not only was it both the umpires apparently – the Mets might have said something that kept everybody going. They were leading four to two, uh, and Edwin Diaz was getting up and down and up and down. And then he, he was, uh, after after warming up considerable a considerable amount at different points in the game, he's pitching in the pouring rain because they should have been delaying the game in, in, after the top of the eighth inning. That's when they should have been delaying the game, <clears throat> and he's been that he's been substantially. Awful since that game. And that's why it's like, I mean, generally speaking, up until then, you know, he still looked like quite the asset that Brody has gotten. Um, he's just, he's, he's one of the sharpest pitchers in when he is on. He's really, really sharp. And you I don't know whether the option should be get rid of Edwin Diaz from the closer position and then put Noah Syndergaard in there just because that, again, it's reactionary. Um, the only reason we're talking about possibly putting O. Syndergaard in there is because they're having bullpen issues. Um, then, obviously, he's been struggling as a starting pitcher, and you're trying that whole Chris Flexen thing with maybe if he's not a starting pitcher, he'll find lightning in a bottle uh, in, in the eighth inning or whatever it is. Um, but I, I – I, I think, though, that, like, you gotta, like, there's always a chain reaction no matter what you do. If you take Steph Lugo or Robert Gazelman out of the rotation, the bullpen's going to suffer, albeit they've been struggling lately as well. <clears throat> so what do I think about – I think he could, be, he could be a good closer with that bulldog mentality, um, but I'd have to agree with everybody that you can't be reactionary, and that's exactly what this would be right now.
0: You've been listening to a Metsian podcast with Sam, Rich, and Mike. And tonight's roundtable panel has been comprised of Taryn, a gal for all season, John from Mets Daddy, and John Toppinger from Mets Tridons. Uh Thank you all for being on tonight's podcast, and thank you uh, likewise for your time. Uh, so, Taryn, I want to let you uh, round this uh, Thor closer deal thing, whatever, whatever the hell you want to call it.
4: Um, I, I have to say I, I was really torn. I, I've heard many compelling arguments for it. I think it would be a monumentally bad idea. Um, I, I was. It seems like Syndergaard has been pitching forever, right? He's only been pitching since 2015. I think about how long ago 2015 was. It seems like, I mean, I think in Mets years, some people eat, you know, how, you know, dogs age in dog years and there are light years. It's like, what's a Met year? It. it I a, feel a like. A Trax will start. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that, that's, that is... I like that. I'm going to have to steal that one. So we you have a it. Steve will start, you know, a, a human rain delay of years that, that becomes a Met season. Um, I think Noah Syndergaard has got many, many long years of, of being a starter. Um, is this something that I, I think, you know, we bring up, you know, pitchers like Smoltz and we bring up pitchers like Eckersley, and I, I, I really think that they're the exception and not the rule. And they were they were bona fide Hall of Famers, and they, they should have been um, based on based on their careers. Uh, Syndergaard, to me, I, I think it would be incredibly shortsighted to think like, oh well, the closer we have sucks, so we're just gonna make Noah Syndergaard. It's like, are you kidding me? Um, I mean, if it were to happen, I wouldn't want it to be um, similar to how Mike Piazza found out he was gonna start playing first base. Um, because the Mets are a bunch of assholes, and they would do something like that, um, but I, I don't really see that being the cure. You know, any kind of cure for anything that ails the Mets. Noah guard needs to be a starter should he stay a Met, and that's all I'm going to say about that.
0: <laughs> Closer four, four and
2: eight.
4: Stephen Tracht
2: will start to go. That's all I thought when you guys said it. I was just like, it it sounds like something in a presidential speech about time.
0: (laughs) Daddy, if they were talking about next season, like I said, I'd be willing to sleep on it. It doesn't mean I'm leaning one way or the other, but this Thor thing is a closer. What do you think?
5: When I read this, I almost had a stroke. Um, (laughs) Only the Mets could be this monumentally – stupid uh, it, they had Craig Kimbrell a Hall of Fame closer available and we heard nah we don't need Craig Kimbrell we have Enwin Diaz Enwin Diaz is so phenomenal that we don't want Craig Kimbrell because we would rather have Tim Peterson no not Tim Peterson uh Chris Flexen, not Chris Flexon Corey Oswald. No, not him, Jacob Robb. No, Paul Seawald. The Mets were willing to just line up a bunch of fucking shit in their bullpen for the deity that was Edwin Diaz in the ninth inning. He hits one rough patch in his entire career, and now we're talking about Edward. Uh, now we're talking about him in the eighth inning with Noah Syndergaard closing. And by the way, talk about another complete overreaction. Noah Syndergaard. I think everyone will say that this season has been a complete disappointment for Syndergaard, top to bottom. I don't think anyone's going to argue. You know Noah Syndergaard is top 35 in FIP. You know what that means? At his absolute worst, at his worst, he is a number two starter in baseball. This is why teams are lining up saying, don't ruin this guy's career. Just send him to us. If you're going to do something stupid, make the stupid thing trading him to us. Don't do – like, I I can't imagine taking a guy who throws 98 to 100 with a phenomenal slider, a good curveball, and a good changeup. A guy, when he's right, can average almost seven innings a game – a guy who we've seen go toe-to-toe and basically outpitch. Madison Bumgarner, the best money pitcher of this generation for seven innings in a wild card game. No, he had a rough year because of a down ball and the Mets' defense being putrid. I mean, J.D. Davis, I don't even know why this guy owns a glove. He's the worst fielding third baseman and left fielder in all of baseball. Uh, and he's out there almost every, you know, he's out there sufficiently enough to be, by the way, like the bottom 10 in DRS, uh, him and Rosario. The Mets have people out there who can't field. It, it, Rosa, uh, Noah Syndergaard is, gets, I, I think he gets dinked and dunked more than any other pitcher on this pitching staff because of his quality stuff. Pitches that should, ball, batted balls that should be caught by the fielders aren't caught when he's on the field. Why? Because they have incapable fielders. And as and, and for all of this talk about how Brody Van Wagenen is going to overturn this analytics department, I think it was Mark Simon um, for Sports Info Solutions wrote an, an article for The Athletic who said, the Mets are the worst shifting team in baseball. They are one of only four teams in baseball who have cost themselves run. So because the Mets are stupidly run, we're going to now make Noah Syndergaard a closer because we don't know how to field. I mean, do the Mets not realize that the same people who can't field in innings one through six when Syndergaard's on the mound won't be able to field in the ninth inning? It'll be the same problems. Again, you can't if you' going to take and you could have taken Edwin Diaz and put him in the eighth inning this year and had Craig Kimbrell, but you didn't want to do that because you know I, I think we were discussing earlier, is Brody ever willing to admit he's wrong? Well no, because he 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 wasn't willing to sign Craig Kimbrell when he had the chance and say, "You know, maybe I'm putting too much stock in the Jacob Reams of the world." No, no, and, and, and put all this aside. Um, let's say this is something the Mets should visit for a number of reasons to to fix the bullpen. Who are you getting to start? You need to fill in Syndergaard's spot in the rotation. Does any of us trust Brody to swing a trade to get a to get a a, a number two in here? I mean, what is he going to trade? The top three guys he got this past off. Uh, this past, what are we going to trade? Uh, Beatty, Wolf, and Allen, and get back. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Pick um, who's the guy that was uh, traded. Uh, Sonny Gray. Is he going to trade those top three for Sonny Gray and take back Joey Voto's contract? Because that's what we do. We trade huge talent to get uh, average people and bloated contracts. Um. No, the, the Mets, the, the, the two biggest things you can do as the Mets organization to help this bullpen. It, it, it's so simple, it's infuriating. The first, you really want to help this bullpen, you don't put Syndergaard in the night. You get an actual defense. What happens when you get an actual defense is the starting pitchers go, go a little deeper. Into the game. Look at the 2015 bullpen. The 2015 Bull ten for most of the year was shit. It was awful. It was basically Jerry's familia, and like Terry Collins going, uh, I don't know, Hansel Robles today. But what happened was they they were positioned well, and they had good enough. They were good enough defensively, where you had Degrom for seven, Harvey for eight, Matts when, whenever he was able to pitch when he was on his back for 6.1. If you get these starting pitchers back to pitching with length, partially because you have people who actually know how to catch the ball, and the thing we all harp on, playing people where they can actually play, next thing you know, if if you have a starting pitcher, like I don't think anyone here th- uh, would disagree that DeGrom could easily average seven innings a start. If he's doing that, you just need two innings out of your bullpen. Well then, now you're eliminating a bunch of the junk, and and you're expecting a lot less out of an Edwin Diaz. You're expecting a lot less out of a Seth Luno, out of a Robert Descelmont. Fix the things that need fixing, and don't make don't make changes and create holes in other areas. The Mets do this all the time. This this uh, way of operating this team needs to stop. What they need to do is say Syndergaard's a number two, Diaz is a closer, Dominic Smith's not a left fielder, Michael Goffordo's not a center fielder, Wilson Ramos is shot. You start from there, you fix the things properly, and things will fall into place the way they should. But the minute you put Syndergaard in as a closer, you're not going to have anywhere near the rotation where you're getting the ball to Syndergaard. So congratulations. You don't get to cash in on Syndergaard uh, with an Astros or a Padres package because you made them a closer. And going back, is there anyone stupid enough to trade the next Kalenic to get Syndergaard the closer? No, there isn't.
0: So, yeah, not long, until we drop well, them well, and well. make them available. <laughs> uh, we covered a lot. I uh, Thank you all. Congratulations. We somehow managed that relatively well. Uh, let's, instead of what we at a Messian podcast call a last word, we'll do closing statements and, uh, it's an open floor. You can invent whatever you'd like. And, uh, once again, before we go there, thank you all. Thank you, Taryn. Thank you, John from Mets Daddy. And thank you, John Koffinger from Mets Trudonis again for your time this evening and, you know, talking Messian baseball with us. Uh, I, I, I will start very simply with my closing statement, if I, if I may. Uh, we're the second team we're the second worst team in the national league sixteen better than Miami. lo and behold, we open up the second half against the Marlins now, for better or worse, you know whatever happens we're in for a great story uh and I foresee a fruitless or worse useless trade deadline and I foresee the Met's getting hot in september and and in doing so planting next season seeds of new false hope, and I'll leave it at that. That said, I will turn it over to Mr. Coppinger.
3: Well, first off, I want to say what a pleasure it is to um, be here again with, uh, with all you guys and, um, and, and Coop, it's been too long. It really has. It's been, it's been way too long. Um, First thing I want to, first thing I want to say is that um, you know? I was in a game in Atlanta where Matt Harvey was on the scoreboard and he didn't have a name, and he was number eleven. <laughs> so this kind of thing happens, and it's more than just Cleveland, unfortunately. So that's the first thing I want to say. And the second thing I want to say is that, you know, I I don't know how uh, how we can move forward with this brain trust. We know the Will Ponds aren't going anywhere, but they have – they went and they thought outside the box with Brody, an agent, to be a general manager. And I think clearly you could say these early returns have not worked. And in terms of the the question about, well, will Brody ever admit that he's wrong, I think the fact that he fired two coaches and then berated whoever was left – and threw a chair because a lost game was their fault. I think that's proof enough that this is not a person that will admit defeat or admit mistakes. And that worries me. It worries me with this upcoming trade deadline. And it worries me this winter. I've worked for bullies. I've worked for tyrants. And I can tell you that when people work for people like that, it, It makes them less motivated to do their job well, and you could say that Mickey Calloway already didn't do his job well, and that would be fair. But this is the guy who the Wilpon – in Brody, who I like to call Brody Von Monorail because he's basically the Monorail guy from the Simpsons. This is a guy who they – this is the guy who they've entrusted their future to. And I, if you look at recent Mets history, I don't think this is a mistake that the Wilpons are going to admit either. I think they're going to ride or die with Brody over the next three, four years. And I'm worried as to what kind of shape the franchise will be in then. As As it's been noted here, they had a very good draft. It's predicated on basically two guys playing well and maybe they get lucky and some other guys that they that they drafted take the torch and and are developed well but i don't know how much confidence i have hopefully brody figures it out and hopefully brody has some introspection within himself and hopefully he comes out of this trade deadline of this winter a new and improved brody but uh, I gotta say that I'm worried. These are these are tenuous times that I don't even think we had in the last few years when we had uh, when we had Sandy Alderson as general manager, or, or even going back to Omar. I was I was never this concerned, but now I'm concerned. So with that, I, w- I will still be ride or die with this team the rest of the way. And remember, 80% off tickets. Uh, for the second half of the season, so enjoy, everybody.
0: <laughs> Have fun all. Teren, uh, thank you. Thank your research department and the bear. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we <laughs> also,
4: we also, uh, my research assistant has brought our cat out. He's named after Amet. Uh, Wilmer Flores uh is uh, had a, had celebrated his year gotcha day with us a few weeks ago
0: so well, um on behalf, well, on behalf of the coop troop the the stage is yours
4: <laughs> okay um I'm just gonna keep it brief because uh i I know that we're very limited on time um I've kind of said my piece about about the team and what I think um you know needs to be done um i'm kinda I'm kind of with Nottrodamus uh, thinking that uh i I just don't know um where where they're going to end up at the trade deadline and i i can't help but think it's whatever they do is going to be a monumentally bad move but that said um i was saying earlier this season that i just i really wasn't getting much joy out of going to Mets games it became like a job for me um but i have to say that my my good friend tracy invited me to a game and um i went to the sunday night game uh the the uh the weekend of the 69 uh reunion and all that. And uh and I kinda got my groove back and um, you know, not only do I suffer from post traumatic meth disorder, I'm also a met masochist. And I will be going to my twenty eighth stadium of the MLB stadiums next week. Uh Ed and I are following the team to Target Field. Um, so I haven't been tweeting all that much this year, um, but you can still find me on Instagram, and uh, I'll be sure to post some pictures of me and Ed and the bear.
0: Can't wait, as Bart Scott would say. <laughs> John, you can catch his stuff on MetsMorized online and metsminers.net net. He's miss, excuse me. He's miss, excuse me again. He's MetsDaddy dot com. <laughs> Wow, tongue twisted. John, the floor is yours. Uh, I,
5: I I just don't know what to make of this team anymore. Um,
0: the core is here. Um, you have Degrom, you have Syndergaard, Alonzo,
5: um, McNeil. I mean, even to a certain extent, you, you still have Rosario, who I'm still praying beyond all hope he works out. And you have Inwin Diaz. If you cannot win with this core, hell, if you can't even be 500, you're beyond incompetent. And that's who we are. And it's not just Brody. I, I, we all pick up Brody. This is Jeff Wilpon. And this is a guy who, and we, we brought it up earlier, Jim Ducat. I think when, I think, I, and Mark Healy, I wish he could have made it today, Um, had brought up, Jim Ducat didn't want to do Casimir for Victor Zambrano, but, um, you know, J- Jeff Wilpon gets so eager, like like a puppy, uh, to do the deal that Jim Cat finally stopped wasting his time. To me, that's the biggest difference in the organization we have. Sandy Alderson was the voice to say to Jeff Wilpon, stop being stupid. Stop being stupid. Stop being stupid. Let me do my job. Stop being stupid. Brody, his little golf partner, doesn't present that. Um, What the Mets really need in the organization, and and we see this with them bringing back Omar Minaya, they don't like anyone other than yes men. They want people to just think outside the box and try to reclimate Mo Vaughn's career, uh, to empty the farm for a 36-year-old Roberto Alomar or Robinson Cano. They don't want someone who's like Sandy to say, guys, let's be a little patient. We have Kalenic. We have Dunn. We're not going to win in 2019. But if we play this right, we're going to win in 2021, 22, 23, 24,
2: 25. At some
5: point, the Willpons are going to have to admit they don't know what they're doing. And that's fine. And You know what? That's the thing, too they have to admit it's okay to not know. They're really good real estate people. Two things they can't do well is find out ways to invest their money and to run a baseball team. Once they start admitting that, everything's going to get better.
0: Let's go, Mets. Let's go, Mets. Rich.
1: Well, I guess my final thought would be surprise me. You know, I'm going into the second half with low expectations in two ways: low expectations about wins and losses on the field, and low expectations about a productive trade deadline. All right, Mets, you have two chances to surprise me. I'll take either. You know, if you have a good trade deadline, great. I'm happy. I don't care what you do on the field. If you do well on the field and you don't have a great tra- trade deadline, or you're fairly quiet trade deadline, I'll take that that too. So, and if I, if we get both, that's even better. So. Going in with very low expectations, they could positively surprise me in either way. I don't see either scenario playing out, but I'll be hopeful, but yet not expect either, so I can't be disappointed because, let's face it, the first half has been nothing but disappointment. You know, to John's point, they have decent players. They have a decent core. They should not be 40 and 50, and they should not be 40 and 50 in the excruciating fashion that they are. So it's been a big disappointment so far. It's been kind of a rough season to watch. Um, but okay. You know, uh, surprise me in the second half. I'll take any positive surprise you can give me because it hasn't been fun so far.
0: Take us home, Sam.
2: Well, first of all, I have to say, Karen the Coop Cooper, that uh, Studious Meximus sounds like your Chris Majkowski. Chris Majkowski, excuse me. Um, you know, basically, you never, you we never hear of him, but he's very much uh, in the background. Um, and I, I have to say too that uh, something that I saw today, and, and this is totally me, slightly being a hypocrite because I didn't fully research it, uh, but I saw a headline that said uh, MLB experimenting in the Atlantic League with stealing first base. Uh, I'm only not speechless because this is a podcast. It seems as if Rob Manfred is the Jeff Wilpon of Major League Baseball. <laughs> Apparently, the wheel doesn't ride smooth enough. We have to come <laughs> up with something else. And I I, I I think that it's the same way. Jeff thinks that, He he doesn't look at what what the rest of teams around the league are doing and recognizes that they've been doing it wrong. But he's like, you know what? I can reinvent the wheel. But he's tried to reinvent the wheel at least eight times, and he's been unsuccessful every time. Meanwhile, his father has seen the Yankees' unsustainable way of going about things sustain itself pretty soundly, but still thinks it's unsustainable. They're both living in a fantasy world. Rob Manfred is living in a fantasy world thinking that this, all of this types of of stuff is going to appeal to younger fans. When we talked to a younger fan last week, he was very uh, in tune with the game of baseball and the way that it has been played. And I I understand that you can't sometimes tradition leaves prehistoric treatment of women, leaves prehistoric treatment of people uh, uh, who aren't white. I understand that element and that sometimes you have to let the past be the past and be prologue to this. But there's some things that have been working. Jeff Loponk's not one of them. Baseball is. And Rob Manfred needs to understand that too. And maybe, since I said it that way, Rob Manfred and the rest of Major League Baseball will understand that the Wilpons aren't working. Unfortunately, they don't have something glaring at this point. You can't reprimand them for the Madoff thing 12 years later. But, you know, McCourt was using his, the Dodgers as his personal piggy bank. And there's nothing glaring to force the Wilpons to sell but the conversation should be made because, in, in, and I go back to tie this to something that I'm always working on, which is uh, my most ambitious project, wanting to make nature of TV series about Brooklyn and the Dodgers. Shameless plug. Um, at some point, the Brooklyn trust company did not see returns on their assets. And with third Frick, who was the national league president at the time told the Brooklyn Dodgers You can't keep owing us millions of dollars. You have to bring Larry McPhail in here. And Larry McPhail fixed the Brooklyn Dodgers and was the foundation for them eventually being the most profitable team in sports. At some point, the conversation has to be had with the Wilkins, whether that means, look, you need to take your two and a half, three billion dollars 3000000000 billion that they probably at this point get $3 billion and let somebody in here like the Magic Johnson group who knows what they're doing. Because right now, even though the Dodgers are slowly becoming, unless they can win this year, the Buffalo Bills on this era when it comes to losing World Series, they still, year in, year out, are in the top five best teams in baseball. They have done everything right other than win a World Series. But guess what? They're putting themselves year in year out to be in the conversation for winning a World Series, and something has to be done. And the Wilpons had 20 years now where they have not done with the way they operate, and we all know we all know this. Now I'm just I'm, I'm a broken record. And, and Mike and Rich, I'll end with this. Isn't it funny that in the off season we actually gave the
0: Wolfhorns crossed at something. You know what? Some people say a clock is right, a broken clock is right twice a day. I say the sun shines on a dog's posterior at least once a day. So, you know, you can file it in that one if you want. What can we say? 72 games left in the season. Let's go Mets. What can I say more than that? If, if I may, let's. Uh, I'll ask you one more favor on the count of three. If we can put out two Let's Go Mets chants, we'll end this show properly. So, across crossing my fingers. Here we go. One, two, three. Let's, let's go, go Mets. Mets. Let's go, let's go Mets. Mets. And sell
2: the All team, right. Sell the team. Come on. Sell it.
0: That's what it sounds like in the eighth inning after a bunch of Coronas. Thank you, everyone, for the whole season. John Met Daddy, John MetzGradamus, thank you again for your time. You're always welcome back. It's a pleasure having you each and every time you visit the show. Look, to forward, look forward to having you on again sometime soon. Sam Rich, thank you again. Good night, everyone. Good
4: night. Good night. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you.